Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. So we are talking, we are entering, we have entered, in fact, the Easter season. The season where we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we know that because He came, that because He died on the cross for us, and because He no longer sits in the tomb, that we have a reason to celebrate. But not only do we have a reason to celebrate, He came to show us the reason He came. And that reason today is a, the reason is mercy. Mercy is the reason He entered into Jerusalem. Next week we're going to talk about the, or Good Friday, we're going to talk about the cross. And love is the reason He went to the cross. Sunday we're going to talk about the reason He came is to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And the fact that that life starts when you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so we are thankful for this Easter season because it shows God's mercy, God's love, and God's life. To us. With all of that being said, and with Jesus Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection, it is because of the empty tomb that we know that our tomb too shall be empty. That we know that what He has accomplished in Himself, He will accomplish for us. And we praise Him for that. And so today, I want to start this. Easter series, as it were, titled The Reason, with mercy is the reason. And I want to talk about mercy and why it is the reason why he entered into Jerusalem, why he came to Jerusalem, why he entered through the gates of Jerusalem during the triumphal entry. In Luke 19, if you'll turn there, and I'm going to go ahead and get started on this teaching pretty quickly because I've got quite a bit to say, probably too much, I hope not. Luke 19, 28 through 38, and I'm going to read this to you. It is the passage known as the triumphal entry. It says, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which one yet has, in which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus upon it. Now that's, that's, that's a preaching in of itself. The Lord has need of it. They just let it go. Sometimes we need to just recognize that something we have, the Lord may have need of it, and we just need to let it go. But that's not the point of the teaching today. I, I literally just read that for context. Verse 35, he says, They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus upon it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Let me stop right here for a quick second. 
because we all picture when this is happening, we see Jesus entering the actual gate of the city because it's the painting that we've always been given since the time we were a child. When we open up our children's storybook, Bible storybook, we see Jesus on a donkey and people waving palm branches and throwing their jackets on the ground as he's entering the city. But that's not what this says. The Bible doesn't say they started throwing their coats on the ground when he entered the city. The Bible says very specifically that they threw their coats on the ground as he was approaching near the descent of Mount of Olives. Now, I've been to Jerusalem, I've been to Israel, and I will tell you that's a quarter of a mile away from the traditional place that the painting in the children's storybook shows us, which means that the people came out of their homes, came out of their town, met him up to a half a mile away, and literally had a parade celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ was coming because they believed that they, had had a, they were going to have an earthly king when in fact he knew that wasn't the case. But I want you to understand, they celebrated. They celebrated his arrival. We should celebrate his arrival. It wasn't a temporary thing. In fact, back in the book of Matthew, it says that the whole city was stirred because they knew Jesus was coming, and they asked, who is this guy? And then they come to realize who he was, and they celebrated. Let us celebrate this Easter. The whole crowd of disciples went to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Verse 38, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Verse 41, Then he, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. I'm a, I'm a big definitions guy. I like to dig into the meanings of words and all that kind of stuff. And I find it very interesting. This is only the second time that it ever mentioned Jesus weeping the first time at the death of Lazarus. But he wept over the city. It didn't say he cried over the city. It didn't say that he sniffled over the city or that he was saddened about the city. It says that he wept. Weeping is much more than just crying. If you look up the word weep in the dictionary, they use a sentence. They use the word in a sentence, and this is the word that they used to describe this word in a sentence. The way a mother cries over the loss of a child. Man, that'll tear your heart out. I've sat in rooms with mothers who have lost their children. And I will tell you, they are truly weeping. They are inconsolable. They are beside themselves with grief. And I believe this is exactly what Jesus was doing. It wasn't some short teardrop as he moved into Jerusalem. I believe because I understand, or I think I understand, at least to some small degree, the love that God has for us. I believe he was heaving in his chest, much like a mother would who just lost a child. In fact, it says why he wept. And essentially it says because he realizes he's lost a child. In verse 42 it says, If you had known in this day, he's talking over Jerusalem. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. So he's saying, you've skipped over all the things that would have brought you peace. And now they're no longer available to you. You didn't listen to the prophets. You killed them. 
Now the warnings that they gave, had you heeded them, and the blessings that you would have received, had you heeded them, are no longer available to you. They are beyond your sight. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So he says there's coming a time where there's going to be absolute destruction. And if you know anything of Israeli history at all, Jewish history at all, you'll know that over and over and over and over again since this time and even before it when they wouldn't heed the prophet, this is exactly what happened. The temple was toppled. The people were destroyed. And they continue to be destroyed because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. And because Jesus loves his people like a mother loves his child, he wept as a mother who has just lost a child. I want you to think about that when you think you're not important to God. Jesus weeps over the lost. Jesus weeps over those that have refused the gospel. Jesus weeps over those that don't know him or reject him or talk badly about him or blaspheme him. How much better for a people to cause Jesus to laugh. In this time, in this weeping, we see the true heart of Jesus. And that heart is a heart of mercy. To say something is merciful is to pay it the highest compliment. It's to say it's compassionate, tender, forgiving, selfless, and protective. Of course, Jesus and God are all of these things. Mercy is when Jesus looked out at our desperate condition and extended unconditional loving kindness to us. This is the reason he came. This is the reason he entered the city of Jerusalem. Because God is merciful. Jesus is God. He saw our desperate condition, recognized that we had no power to correct our desperate position, and extended loving kindness to us in, the, in what we know as grace. Undeserved favor. He gave us what we needed without considering, one, our ability or willingness to pay it back, or our merit. And that in of itself is all the preaching I need to do to you today. God loves you enough that he sent his only begotten son. And that son entered because God is merciful. The scriptures declare him merciful. Psalms 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a good, or, or God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I love the fact that it says the, God, the Father of all mercies. That means that all mercy is sired by Him. He is the parent of all mercy. Any mercy that's ever been extended to you, 
extends from the heart of God because He is the Father of all mercies. Just like any good characteristic that is in any person, that originated in God because there's nothing good in us but that God which lives in us. And so because He is merciful and He is the Father of mercy, we know that we can receive mercy from Him. And in fact, we did receive mercy from Him in the form of His Son, Jesus. And so mercy is the reason. I know I've done a bit of talking out of Luke chapter 19, but it's not where I intend to teach from today. It's just my intro. I intend to teach from Luke chapter 9. So why the switch? Because in Luke 19, we see the action of Jesus' mercy. In Luke chapter 9, we see the reason for Jesus' mercy. And that's what I want to talk about today. Mercy being the reason. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 51 through 56. It says, When the days were approaching for His ascension, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers on ahead of Him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Do you not know what kind of spirit you are from? You are of? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So I want to talk to you about the three reasons Jesus extended mercy. Why three, why mercy existed. One, mercy is the reason for his determination. Mercy is the reason for his determination. Verse 51 says this, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. It depends on which which translation you read out of but it may say that he was fixed upon not only was it or, or immovable firmly established that that he set his face his flint towards his towards jerusalem which means he was absolutely unshakable shake christ was unshakable in his determination to go to jerusalem he and this is how i picture it in my head i don't i don't i don't know that this is necessarily the case but you've got to realize this is about halfway through the Gospel of Luke. And Luke gives half of his Gospel from the point that Jesus realized his time for ascension had come to the end of, till, till Jesus' ascension. He was so, this is how I see this playing out. He's doing the ministry. He's doing what he's been called to do. He's doing everything he's supposed to be doing. He realizes in his spirit or whether he knows it because he's God. I'm not sure exactly how that transpired. I wouldn't begin to even try to explain how that transpired. But in my mind, I see a, I see a God sitting around a campfire with 12 disciples and I see him standing up looking over a hill in the direction that is Jerusalem. And from that point becoming immovable. Because he is unshakable in his resolve to go there. He's unshakable in his resolve to go there knowing that he was going there to endure the curse 
and the shame of the cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, which means He bought us back, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Did you know Jesus Christ took the curse that you deserved? He paid the penalty that you deserved, nailed Himself to a cross on purpose so that you wouldn't have to. He redeemed you. He went to Jerusalem, determined to go there, unshakable in His conviction to do so, for no other reason than He wanted to save you from the curse and the shame of the cross. And the only way that He could accomplish that was to become that curse and that shame Himself. And we serve a good God. He was determined to go to Jerusalem, know that he would, knowing that he would endure rejection of the men who, came, who he came to save. Isaiah 53, many of you know that this is some of my favorite passages. But Isaiah 53, 3 says it as specifically as I know how. Isaiah is prophesying about the suffering servant, Jesus. And he says, he was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is exactly the truth. We see Jesus being celebrated, people meeting him a half a mile down the road, throwing their jackets on the ground to worship in worship of him. To just a few days later, cursing him, spitting at him, cussing at him, nailing him to a cross, beating him. Why? Because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Regardless of the fact that he would be despised there. Regardless of the fact that he would be rejected there. That he would be forsaken there. That he would find sorrow there. Grief there that no, nobody would even look at him. And this plays out so perfectly in what actually happened in the life of Jesus. Peter, his best friend, one of his best friends, turned his face away from him, wouldn't even look at him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He knew, he went to Jerusalem knowing that he would endure the wrath of God. Verse 10 says this in that same Isaiah 53 passage. It, it, between 4 and 9, it talks about how horribly he was oppressed and the beating that he took and how he was crushed and all the things that happened to him that we know is the, is the gospel message, is, the, is, the, uh, is his dying and suffering, as the passion of the Christ. And in verse 10, he says this, but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. This is a promise of the resurrection and ours. As a good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. As a result of the anguish of his, Jesus' soul, he, God, will see it and be satisfied doesn't even make sense. I've got children. Many of you have children. Could you imagine one of your children going through what Jesus went through? 
and declaring that it pleased you to see it happen? Absolutely not. You know why? Because our love or our, our understanding of love is imperfect. God loves so perfectly that he was willing to sacrifice of himself so that he might be able to love us for all of eternity. The pain, the suffering, the struggle, the piercing, the crushing, the everything that he dealt with, everything that Jesus dealt with in the flesh pleased God because he knew the end result would be our ability to spend eternity with him. The apple of God's eye, us, the people, the pleasure, the, the gem of his creation forever in his presence and was willing to crush his son for it. Knowing all of these things, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined because he understood the will of God. John 6, 40 says, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last days. This is God's will, that we all have eternal life. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If that's God's will, then there's only one way for it to happen, for Jesus to be determined to go to the cross. Christ was determined because he understood the will of God was that we should all have eternal life. This isn't possible if Jesus isn't willing to sacrifice himself. He had to be willing to do the will of the Father before we could be given access to the Father. And because of love, because of his desire to show us mercy, unmerited favor, seeing our desperate condition, loving us anyway, Jesus was determined to come. And that's beautiful. I'm yelling more than I normally do, but I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by how big it is, how beautiful it is. He was obedient to do the will of God. He did everything that God told him to do. John 6, 38 says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus taught only what God taught him to do. He acted only as God told him to act. He suffered as God pre-planned for him to suffer. All of these truths are evident in Scripture. But why did he do it? Why was he determined? Why did he come here? He came here, one, to show us mercy because he understood the stakes for us. The fact of the matter is we all are headed for a devil's hell deserving death. And I know that's old school verbiage, devil's hell, but let me tell you that's exactly what it is. It's a devil's hell. It was never intended to be a man's hell. It's our fall from grace. It's our fall from favor. It's our sin nature, both living and inherent, that has caused us to be moved to a devil's hell. And we were all headed there because we all deserved to head there. You guys know the verse, I say it every Sunday, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let me tell you, that's not an isolated verse in the Scripture. There's, that's a normative verse throughout Scripture. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good, and who never sins. He says there's not even a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. So even after God imputes righteousness to us, 
we still sin, and He still loves us, and He was still determined to go to the cross for us, and He was still determined to go to Jerusalem for us, and He was still determined to love us, and He was still determined to die for us so that we could be with Him forever. Some of y'all think I've done too much. God can't possibly love me. Let me tell you what this word says. There is not a righteous man on earth who continually, which means constantly, never strays from good or who never sins. We've all done it. You need to ask God to forgive it and then walk away from it. Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All of us are under sin. Both those belonging to God and those that don't belong to God. The only thing that separates us is the sacrificial mercy extended in the form of grace given to us in Christ Jesus. Not only did he understand the stakes for us, though, he understood the stakes for himself. Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was a joy for him waiting. He knew that joy was waiting for him to sit at the right hand of the Father. The joy of being with his dad, the joy of being forever and eternally with his people. If this didn't happen... That wouldn't happen. And so for this reason, he was determined to endure the cross, despise the shame, endure his suffering, so that he, too, could spend eternity with us. All because mercy is the reason. All because he looked at us from the throne room of his father and said, look at them. They're helpless. We have to do something. We have to extend loving kindness. Their condition is unassailable by themselves. Without me going, they have no hope. But it's not true now. For our hope is eternal. And our hope is in Christ Jesus. Number two. Mercy is the reason he desires to reach those who are undeserving. Verse 52 and 53 of the text reads like this. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire? To come down from heaven and consume them? The, the Samaritans rejected Jesus. But why? They rejected him because, as it says here in the scripture, because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. Let me explain the conflict between, just in very short terms here, the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. We all know that there is one. We've heard the Good Samaritan story. We've heard all of those stories. We hear about the women at the well and all of that. But let me tell you why this tension existed. This tension existed because the Jews believed that God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem where the temple was, when in fact that's true. 
because the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out yet. We were yet to be the temple. So that God rested his presence, his Shekinah glory in a place. And that place was the temple of God. But the Samaritans determined that they would do it at Mount Gerizim where they lived. And so they set up a, a site for worship there. It was a false site. They determined that they were going to worship however they decided to worship. And it wasn't just a pure worship of God. It was a worship of God mixed with pagan ritual. And so there was this constant conflict and tension because the Jews were telling the Samaritans they were going to hell. The Samaritans were telling the Jews they were going to hell. So when Jesus walks through there and says, hey, we need a place to stay because we're on our way to Jerusalem to worship, it's reasonable to expect that they would say, not today. That's not going to happen. It was probably very vocal about it and run them out of town. Sadly, the world often acts as these Samaritans. They reject Christ because they have their own idea of how and where their God should be worshipped. Their small g, God. Sadly, the church acts like these Samaritans. We think our traditions are the God that we should be serving. I, I probably haven't told you this a lot, or maybe I have. But I make a habit to walk around the church several times a month, really, and look for things and think, if I took that out of this building, would someone be mad enough to leave? If I stopped doing this, would someone be mad enough to stop giving? Because I have offended their tradition. If we stopped doing hymns altogether, would your tradition cause you to go somewhere else? Oftentimes, like these Samaritans, we put our traditions in the way of our true religious practice, in the way of our worship of God. You know what, it's the church's responsibility to look for those golden calves inside of our congregation, inside of our building, inside of our homes, in our lives, and tear them down, and melt them down, and shred them, and destroy them by whatever means possible. Because let me tell you, God determines how we should worship, not us. Let us not be the Samaritans. The Bible tells us very specifically how we are to worship. John 4, 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And they must do it while putting no confidence in the flesh. According to Philippians 3.33, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So let me tell you, if your tradition in any way relies on your ability or willingness to do it, it ain't worship. This is the reason the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. Perhaps this is the reason why we don't have the relationship with God that we should have. Because we've decided that we're going to go outside of spirit and truth. Outside of a provocation of the spirit. And adherence to the word of God. To find a place that makes us comfortable to worship. Instead of the place that God has placed us to worship. Let me tell you, God can be found, but he will only be found in a true temple. And the Holy Spirit has made you his true temple. As long as you're willing to worship in spirit and in truth. 
Unfortunately, too many of us act like these disciples. Not only have we determined that we're going to worship how we want to worship, we act like these disciples and that we want to condemn those that are different than us. We lack the ability to see others the way that God sees them. We see the addict and we say, he deserves what he got, or the homeless guy, and we say, well, he's a result of the multiple bad decisions that he's made. Or we see the homosexual and say, he deserves to go to hell because he's an abomination before God. But let me tell you, don't let me tell you, let me ask you, aren't you glad that God didn't say, he's a liar, he deserves to go to hell, he's a glutton, he deserves to go to hell. He's an adulterer. He deserves to go to hell. He's a dissenter of the brethren. He deserves to go to hell. Thank God God didn't determine to send us to hell based on what we deserved, but because He is a merciful God, He decided who doesn't go to hell based on who makes a declaration of His Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. I'm preaching at you today. I'm leading at least one person in your living room to say amen because we don't get the opportunity to worship the way that we want to worship and we don't get the opportunity, the, the ability to do to others what God didn't do to us. It's a shameful thing when those who should care the most about lost souls care the least because we think since we're over that hump now, we don't have to reach back and grab those that are still struggling. The Bible is very specific to say in Luke 20, 12, 48, those who have been given much, much will be required. And if you've been given the blood of Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you better be willing to sacrifice something for somebody else. This message isn't near as graceful as I was thinking it was going to be. But it's very timely. Church, now's the time for us to worship right, and to love right. Don't we understand that we were unworthy and are still unworthy? The only reason that we aren't consumed is because the mercy of God has been put on display on our behalf. We have been commanded to not only care, but to do something about the situation of others, to demonstrate to mercy the mercy to them that God demonstrated to us. John 13, 30, 13 34 says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. First time I read this many years ago, it struck me weird because it says a new commandment I give you. Because I had read previously in the book of Leviticus and the Levitical law that we're supposed to love our neighbor. So how is this a new commandment? Because in Leviticus, it doesn't say love your neighbor as Jesus has loved you. It says love your neighbor as you love yourself. But let me tell you, Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. And so he tightened the restrictions of your love, or I guess didn't tighten them, but opened up the requirements of your love. He doesn't expect you to love people the way that you love yourself. Because some of you don't love yourself right. He expects you to love your neighbor like he loves you. Which means sacrificially. Which means giving of yourself. Which means doing whatever is necessary. Even if that means being despised and afflicted. Our responsibility is to be merciful because God was merciful. To, to give because much has been given. To love because much love has been poured out. 
I could go on and on with this, but let me tell you, we have a command. We were unworthy, but God extended us mercy. How will they not know that God wants to extend them mercy if we don't show them or if we don't tell them? I read it in the, in the offertory. How will they know unless someone tells them? Every person that I've ever talked to that gave their life to the Lord gave their life to the Lord after someone was willing to tell them the truth. But let me tell you, they're not going to accept the truth out of your mouth when it comes from a mouth that was talking trash about them. Number three. Mercy is the reason for his mission. Verse 54 reads like this. When his disciples, James and John, I'm sorry, verse 56, 55 and 56. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus' mission was simple. Not to destroy men, but to save them. And the only way that he could do that is if he was willing to extend mercy. He has every right to destroy us. I talk about this every week. We were all sinners. I've talked about it already. We deserve destruction. It's what we deserve. We rejected him. And he has the right to pour his wrath out on us. But he didn't. Instead, he decided to send us Jesus. Even though it's what we deserved. Ephesians 2.3 says, Among them, we too are formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and by nature children of wrath even as the rest did you catch that we are by nature means at the very pit of who we are we are children of wrath at the very simplest of our fabric of our being we are children deserving wrath Come on up here, Brother Caleb. We are children deserving wrath, but he didn't give us wrath. Instead, he gave us his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what we had coming. This is what we got. His mercy superseded our just reward. I can't get my head around that. But I knew that I do know that because he was willing to do it. Romans 5 9 is true. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Having made having been made guiltless by the shedding of his blood, because the Bible tells us in Romans, or correction, Hebrews nine twenty two, without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin. So we've been made guiltless by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. And now, because we've been saved 
from the wrath that we deserve through him because God sent him. We know that we are saved. That we are no longer at enmity with God. All because Jesus decided to do a thing. Because he decided to empty himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians 2, 6 through 8. We read these verses all the time, but think about them. In this Easter season, think about them. He, in his mercy, in seeing our need, emptied himself took off magnificent beauty and glory and put on this to live in this because he knew if he didn't humble himself to do it if he didn't humble himself even to the point of death even to the point of being cursed on a cross that we would die still deserving still standing under the judgment of the wrath that God deserves to pour out on us but decided not to. That's the beauty of the Easter season. That's the beauty of Him coming. Is that He determined to demonstrate mercy to us. He determined to reach out to those that rejected Him. And He determined to accomplish His mission of saving us. And so I ask the question very simply, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with a God that sacrificed himself so that you wouldn't have to die? Not only that you wouldn't have to die and suffer the wrath of God, but that you would never, so that you would never die. I tell you the only reasonable answer. People say it doesn't seem reasonable to me that he would do that. I don't care if it's reasonable. Let reasonableness kneel at the door of the truthfulness of the word of God. Because the only reasonable thing is that we accept what he's done for us. If you haven't given your life to the Lord, or if you've allowed yourself to fall back, someone on our staff wants to pray with you, minister to you. If that's you and you're watching this, as you're looking at your screen on the bottom right-hand side corner, there's there's a, a green hand. If you will click that, It'll take you to a private chat. One of our hosts will be there. One of our elders, one of our pastors will be there. And they want to have a conversation with you. They want to pray with you. They want to talk to you and tell you next steps so that ultimately you might be exactly where you need to be to receive the mercy, the love, and the life that Christ came, died, and rose again to give you. I love you. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we thank you that mercy is the reason that you demonstrated mercy by coming here, that you saw our need, recognized that we couldn't meet it, and took action to fulfill it. God, we praise your holy name. We exalt the name of your son, Jesus. 
We thank you, Heavenly Father, because you are mighty and gracious. During this Easter season, God, let us be Jesus to someone else. Let us reflect your Son to the people around us. Let us be the people that tell them so that they might know. Show us how to worship properly. Show us how to love properly. I thank you, God, that you'll do it because your word tells us that anything we ask according to your will, you hear us. Because you hear us, we have what we've asked for. We know it's in your will that we tell others about you, about your son Jesus and the gospel message so that they too might spend eternity with you. Continue to fan into flame the heart, passion that the people in this church have. God, I pray a special blessing over every member of the Launch Point Church family. God, during this time, I, I, I pray a hedge of protection around them. God, that no enemy might come against them. I pray a protection over their house. I plead the blood of Jesus over their house that no enemy disease could come against them. That they be healthy in Jesus' name. I praise you, Heavenly Father, for who you are. We thank you that death is of no concern to us. That death has no sting to us. Thank you, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I appreciate you coming today. and I, I covet the day that we will be back in the house together. But until then, be faithful. Use this time to grow yourself spiritually and use this time to reflect the joy and the love and the purity of Christ to the people around you. I love you. Be blessed. Bye-bye.